Welcome to this message from Shofar Christian Church. May you experience God's grace as you listen to His Word being preached. The portion of scripture I want to preach about this morning is also about a family. Um, we've been for the last couple of weeks, um, Stefan started a couple of weeks ago, speaking about the, parab- the so-called parable of the prodigal son, and last week I shared about, uh, a bit of, on it as well. And for the next couple of weeks, we're going to do that. And, and our theme for this year is being one. Our sort of global theme for the uh, shofar movement is being one. And, and why this parable is relevant. We all know the parable. The, but we know it as a parable of a, of a um, young rebellious son who ran a, away to a far country, ended up in a pigsty, came to his senses and came home. And his older brother was angry about that. And, 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 and we think of it in... Sometimes in religious terms of, okay, this is our salvation work. And, and, and that is true. It is a picture of our salvation works. But we sometimes miss the point. Something that, that would have been very obvious to the hearers in Jesus' audience when he first taught this parable. Because they were Middle Eastern um, people who, who were very sort of collective in their identity. They would have seen this uh, you know, very easily. But because we are modern Westerners who are often very individualistic and who often, under the influence of our culture, don't value family nearly as much as Jesus' original years, we are in danger of missing the fact that this is actually a parable about a family that is falling apart, a family that is being broken up, and how the Father's heart is to bring that family back together again. We so easily miss that. We so easily miss that. And last time I was, I was talking about the thing that breaks up the family is actually idolatry. Both sons, in very different ways. The younger brother is irreligious. The older brother is very religious. The, the younger brother is very unrighteous. The older brother is very self-righteous. And... In different, very different ways, both brothers are busy with a self-salvation project and actually looking towards something else to save them, which is idolatry. So the very thing at the heart of what is breaking up this family is idolatry. And in order to bring the family back together again, sacrifices will have to be made. Someone will have to sacrifice and go through pain. And we're going to see a bit more about that um, this morning um, as, we, as we go through it. So, so it's, it's, a, it's a parable about a family breakup. And, and the reality is human nature, I mean, a lot has changed. I mean, culture has changed radically. I mean, if, if, if one of those guys from that time, you know, uh, one of Jesus' apostles, say, say, you know, James or Matthew were to time travel to our time and we show them a mic, you know, with, <laughs> which you can amplify your voice, or, or we show them, you know, a sound system, or we show them, a, you know, a smartphone, for crying out loud, they would fall on their backs. <laughs> if we told them about what's going on in our culture, if, you know, if they just saw the clothes we were wearing, you know, synthetic material like this, crazy, unthinkable to them, you know, a lot has changed, but a lot has also stayed the same. Human nature is still basically the same. The same problem of sin and idolatry 
that broke up this family is the same problem that is breaking up families and churches today. Same problem. Human nature hasn't changed. Culture has changed. Things on the outside have changed, but the fundamental issues of human nature are still the same. The, the ultimate problem and solution are still the same. So uh, let me just read uh, this parable. It's in Luke chapter 15. I'm just going to read verse 1 to 3 and then from verse 11. It says, Now the tax collectors and sinners were all gathered around to hear him. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law murmured, This man welcomes sinners and eats with them. And Jesus told them, then Jesus told them this parable. Now just notice the two groups that are actual then in the historic context of Jesus. The tax collectors and the sinners, and obviously the younger brother represents them. And then there's the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, and obviously the older brother represents them. Just to, for us to be able to see um, what Jesus is referring to. Let's read from verse 11. It says, Jesus continued, There was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. And, and we spoke last week about how shocking this is, actually, in, in, in the historic context. Basically, the younger brother is, is wishing his father dead, because he only got your inheritance. I mean, even today, you only get your inheritance once your parents die. So he's saying, Dad, I don't want you. I wish you were dead. I just want your stuff. Okay? Not long after that, the youngest son got together all he had, set off to a distant country, and they squandered his wealth in wild living. After he had spent everything... There was a severe famine in that whole country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country who sent him to his fields to feed pig, pigs. Obviously pigs, you know, the far country is not, it's not Israel. They don't eat pork in Israel. Pork is an unclean animal. You know, this must have been rock bottom for this Jewish boy, you know. Not only to lose everything, but then to be... You have to hire himself out, you know. I mean, you can actually interpret, uh, you know, that portion as him selling himself as a slave, not just hiring himself out, but, but selling himself as a slave to this guy in the farm, and then being sent into a pigsty to feed pigs. I mean, that's the worst, you know, unclean animals, stinky unclean animals. Um, he longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. When he came to his senses... He said, how many of my father's hired men have food to spare? And here I am starving to death. I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired men. So he got up and went to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and, and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him, and kissed him. Literally in the Greek it says he fell on his neck and kissed him. You know, he sort of wrapped himself around this boy. The son said to his father, Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father, and the father doesn't even let him finish his, his little speech that he rehearsed. You know? <laughs> the father just says, says to the servants, Quick, bring the best robe, put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and he's alive again. He was lost and he's found. And so they began to celebrate. Meanwhile, the older son was in the field. When he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. So he called one 
of the servants and asked him what was going on. Your brother has come, he replied, and your father has killed the fattened calf because uh, he, has, he has him back safe and sound. The older brother became angry and refused to go in. But the father went out and pleaded with him. But he answered his father, Look, all these years I've been slaving for you and, you never, and, and, and never disobeyed you, your, your orders. Yet you never gave me even a young goat so that I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours, who squandered your property with prostitutes, comes home, you kill the fattened calf for him. My son, the father said, you are always with me and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours, notice he's, the older brother says the son of yours and the father says this brother of yours, was dead and he's alive again. He was lost and he's found. And Father God, we just thank you for your word Thank you that your word is living and powerful, sharper than a two-edged sword, and that it's ever relevant. Thank you that your word is more relevant to us today than the newspaper that is for sale in the shops um, this morning. And, 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 and we want to just receive these truths, Lord, from your word. And we want to pray, Holy Spirit, that you'll teach them to our hearts. You'll instruct us from your word and that you'll encourage us from your word that you'll correct us from your word and that you'll give us the grace that we need to grow and to become more like you. In Jesus' name, amen. So I just want to discuss this, uh, a few aspects of this parable. Obviously, there's a lot that I can't discuss, but just under three headings. This parable teaches us the true nature of our sin, the true nature of our repentance, and the true nature of our Father. So we're just going to look at that. And the, the crux of what I want us to say is, what I want us to see is that even though we don't, even though we underestimate our sin and our need for repentance, we fortunately also underestimate our Father's love even more. Even though we underestimate our sin and need for repentance, we underestimate our Father's love even more. Okay, and we're going to see that from, from, from this parable. So let's jump in. The true nature of our sin. Um, th this, this parable actually, in a sense, shows us the true nature of sin. In a, in a sense, it redefines sin from what we often define it as. We often define sin as what the younger brother does. I mean, we look at that and we say, yes, you know, sinner, you know, wishing his father dead, taking his, his inheritance, you know, just exposing his heart, that his heart was never for the father. All he wanted was the stuff. And as soon as he had the stuff, he took it and he, he ran to, to a far country where, where, where his, his father's rules didn't apply to him. You know, what he saw as stifling, you know, inhibiting rules. You know, his dad just inhibiting his freedom, you know, his, his father's parental correction and, and, and so on. He, he saw that as the problem and he ran away from that and he, and he just wasted everything that his father had given him wild living his brother even says you know spending it on prostitutes and so on and, and we look at that and we say yes you know sin clearly sin rebellion you know he, he rebelled against his father he rebelled against the law of God not only that he ended up in a pigsty and like I said pigs were unclean animals to Jews 
Um, today even, you know, Orthodox Jews don't eat pork, you know. So if a, a Jewish friend comes to visit you, don't offer them bacon and eggs. <laughs> Not going to bless them. <laughs> but he ends up amongst pigs, in a pigsty, feeding pigs. I mean, when you got into contact with something that was unclean according to the law, you became unclean. So this is a picture of, of, of a young man who, because of his heart of rejection of the Father, even hatred towards the Father, wishing the Father dead, rebellion towards the Father, doing everything he shouldn't do, um, blatantly sinning. When, when he has the opportunity, sin, and I mean, so often, you know, we grow up religious. And then as soon, you know, you live up, you grow up in, in a small little town like Pofader or Pitsoner Water, you know, or something like that, and you're under your mom's eye, your mom's watching you, you know. And you do, you do the right things, you know. You don't do so bad. You don't, you don't sin so badly because your mom's watching you. But as soon as you get your stuff together and come to the big bad city of Johannesburg, and you get a good salary, and all of a sudden you have the means to enjoy yourself, then your true heart comes out. And then so often we say, oh, you know, Joburg made me a bad person. No, Joburg did nothing to you. <laughs> when you squeeze a lemon, what comes out? Did you squeezing the lemon put the lemon juice in the lemon? Why did the lemon juice come out? Because that was what was inside the lemon. When Jogwood squeezes you and bad things come out, guess what? It's only exposing what was already there. And we look at that and we recognize it. It's very obvious to us that that is sin. And we're comfortable with that definition of sin. But sometimes we look at what the older brother does and we don't recognize that as sin. Because he says, all these years I've been slaving for you. I never disobeyed your orders. And yet, you never even gave me a young goat. Not so that I could celebrate with you, so that I could celebrate with my friends. And you see, his heart is just as separated from the father as his younger brother. And he looks down on his younger brother. When the son of yours, he even distanced himself from him. And religion will often make you do that. Pride, the pride of religion, just like the pride of irreligion, will cause you to distance yourself from your family. It will cause families to break up. The enemy of oneness. Looks down at his younger brother and says, I've always obeyed you, all your orders. I've been slaving away for you. Why have you been slaving away? His heart is revealed. He never served the Father because he loved the Father. He served the Father... <laughs> For, what, for the rewards he, were, he wanted to receive from the father. He, he wanted the, exactly the same thing as the younger brother. He wanted the father's stuff. His way of getting it was just different. But what he wanted was exactly the same. In other words, sin is redefined not only as doing the wrong things like the younger brother, but doing the right things for the wrong reason. And that's what religion is. Irreligion is doing the wrong things. Religion is doing the right things, but for the wrong reason, not for the love of the father. They're polar opposites, but they, you know, their heart is exactly the same. There's a heart of selfishness. So in other words, sin is not just the selfish disobedience of the younger brother. Sin is also the selfish obedience of the older brother. Hello? Is that a wake-up call? We as Christians are probably, and especially those of us who 
you know, have grown up in church and have been Christians or have been Christians for a long time, we're in grave danger of making the same mistake as the older brother. We, we, we're not as, in as much danger as sinning in the, in the way of the younger brother, but we're in very much danger of sinning in the way of the older brother. Often for us, if we sin, it won't be selfish disobedience. It'll be selfish obedience. That is the true nature of our sin. Our sin is not just the wrong stuff that we do. Our sin is even the right stuff that we do for the wrong reasons, with the wrong motives, out of selfishness. Even that is sin. And until you understand that, until you look at not only the wrong things that you do as sin, but even the right things that you do, recognizing that often your heart stinks when you do the right, even when you do the right things. You do it for absolutely the wrong reason. And, and until you can see that as the true nature of sin, you haven't truly seen your sin. And you cannot truly repent. Our sin goes a lot deeper than we realize. You know, um, Tim Keller says it beautifully. He says, if you only serve the Father for the benefits of serving the Father, if you only serve the Father for what you will get from, from it, then you're not truly serving the Father but yourself. Right? Isn't that so? In other words, if, if you only serve God because you think by serving Him and obeying Him, He will bless you and give you stuff, who are you really serving? You, you're not serving God. You're serving yourself. In fact, you're only making God a means to an end. The end you want is God's blessing. The means is God. Now, here's the thing. Whatever is your means is not your God. Whatever is your end, that is your true God. If God is only a means to an end and that end is blessing, then that blessing is your true God. Not the Father. Not the Father. If we only serve God for how it will benefit us, we're not really serving, our God, but we're not really serving God but ourselves. Selfish disobedience and selfish obedience are equally sin equally sin everything we do primarily for ourselves whether religious or irreligious is sin so with that nature of our sin in mind let's look at the nature of repentance of our repentance and and you know it, it's it's so telling to me when you when you read this this parable um, how the younger brother repents. Um, he, he starts off and he says, in, in fact, let me just read verse 17 to 19, because he actually rehearses his repentance. It says he comes to his senses and then he, then he rehearses his repentance, um, you know, before he runs back to the Father. So from verse 17 to 19, it says, when he came to his senses, he said, now he's talking to himself, he's not talking to the pigs, okay? He says, many of my father's hired men have food to spare, and here I am starving to death. I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired men. So he got up and went to his father. And, and a few things, just three things that we see about the nature of our repentance there. Firstly, um, our repentance is 
towards heaven first. Second, uh, our repentance is always towards heaven first. Our repentance is always inadequate, and our repentance is always a consequence. Those three things. Our repentance is always towards heaven first. It's always inadequate, and it's always a consequence. So, so let's just see this. It's always towards heaven first. He says, Father, I've sinned against heaven, uh, against heaven and, and against you. And this is a principle of repentance that we must see and that we must understand to understand repentance. Repentance is not primarily saying sorry for things I did against other people. It is that too. It certainly is that. But it's not first and foremost that. It's not primarily that. Sin is always against heaven first. I mean, when, when David... Um, famously, you know, had, you know, he saw Uriah, the Hittite's, Hittite's um, wife, Bathsheba, you know, bathing on the rooftops, and, and obviously he was in the castle, so he had the vantage point, you know, he could look down. So he, he was supposed to be out in the field leading his troops, you know, fighting a battle with them. You know, what was he doing at home in any case? But it, it was like the ancient equivalent of, of, of uh, pornography on the internet. So he was like watching this lady bath, and he saw she's a fine lady. You know, uh, she looks good, and I want her. And then he, he planned this. He organized for Uriah the Hittite to go to the to the you know worst part of the battle, and then for the for the commander to draw back his troops so that Uriah could be alone, outnumbered, and killed. And it happened. He basically had him assassinated by his own enemies. Terrible. Then he took Bathsheba. And um, actually, he committed adultery with her already and impregnated her already. And um, then he had Uriah killed um, when he couldn't cover it up any other way. And then he prays a prayer of repentance. And I just I want to encourage you, go, go home and read Psalm 51, where, where, where David repents about the, what, what has happened here. You know, finally, when he's exposed, he repents of it. One of the things he says in, in Psalm 51 verse 4 is, God, against you and you alone have I sinned and done this evil in your sight. And, and what he understood is that all sin is first and foremost against God. All sin is first and foremost Godward. Therefore, all repentance must be first and foremost Godward. Before I repent to Bathsheba for making her a widow and by assassinating her husband, before I repent to, to her for committing adultery with her, I must first repent to God for murdering Uriah the Hittite, whom he created. Who in the context of the old covenant was his, his servant, his son. And I must repent to God for defiling Bathsheba, who is his daughter. Repentance is always Godward first. And this means that there's no such thing as a victimless sin or a victimless crime. Have you ever heard that phrase? A victimless crime or a victimless sin? And people say, no, no. I mean, uh, we, we live together. We're not married. We live together. We have sex together. But, but, I mean, we're consenting adults. No one's getting hurt through this. No. We understand that sin and therefore repentance is always towards God first, towards heaven first. We realize that by doing that, God didn't create a man and a woman to have sex outside of marriage. God created that intimacy for covenant so that it would reflect his love commitment and, and, and even our physical intimacy would reflect his intimacy within the Trinity, within the covenant relationship that is there. And when, even when we do something like that, you know, 
um, having sex, and all sex outside of marriage, obviously, according to God's definition, is sin. According to God's definition, it's sin. But when we do something like that, we dishonor God. We misrepresent God, and we abuse sex, which God, by the way, created. I, I, I see so many Christians who think, you know, sex is dirty and, and the devil created it. No, the devil didn't come up with that idea. God came up with that idea. God created sex, and he created... <laughs> I hope that came from a married man. <laughs> I hope that hallelujah came from a married man. <laughs> God, God created it, and he created it for his glory. As an instrument to reflect something about him and about his glory. And, and, and here's the principle. A misunderstanding of purpose inevitably leads to abuse. If you misunderstand the purpose of something, you will inevitably end up abusing it. And that's how it is with sex. If you misunderstand the purpose of sex, that it's there, firstly, to reflect, well, to reflect God in every way, firstly, through creating covenant relationship, secondly, through procreation, all of those things are things that, that in some way or another reflect God, then you are going to abuse it. If you think it's only for pleasure, you're going to abuse it. And guess what? Whenever we abuse things, we don't only destroy it, but it destroys us. It destroys us. It's like the old example of fire. You know, fire is a good thing. You know, it can you can cook on it, you can heat yourself on it, as long as it's in the fireplace. But take fire and go and make it in your bed or in your roof, the roof of your house. Nothing wrong with a fire. You're just putting it in the wrong place. It's going to burn your house down. And it's the same with, with sex. Sex is a good thing. Nothing inherently wrong with sex. It's, it's a good thing that God created good as long as we keep it in the, in the right place. Um, and we don't always understand that. And, 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 and that's why, because sin is always against heaven first, there's no such thing as a victimless sin or a victimless crime. All sin is first and foremost against God. We don't always understand how it dishonors God, but it's sin first and foremost because it dishonors Him. And that's why when Paul defines sin, he says, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And it's all have sinned by failing to glorify God as they should. That is the first and most important aspect of sin. Um, secondly, our repentance is always inadequate. When you look at this rehearsal of his, of his repentance, uh, in verse 17 to, to 19, he says, I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son, Make me like one of your hired men. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Now, one thing in favor of the younger brother here is he's at least humbled himself and realizes that he's not worthy to be a son to his father. That's the positive aspect of it. And, and he's right about that. He's not worthy. But was he ever worthy? Because he says, I'm no longer worthy implying that at some stage he was worthy. Was he ever worthy? No. In other words, even though he's repenting, humbling himself and repenting, he doesn't realize how much he needs to repent of. He was never worthy. We're never worthy. We don't realize how bad our past is, how bad our sin is against God. Um, and <laughs> the strange thing is God, the Father accepts that repentance. Our Heavenly Father 
accepts our inadequate repentance. Another way in which you can see his repentance is inadequate. He says, make me like one of your hired men. I'm no longer worthy to be your son, not recognizing that he was never worthy. Make me like one of your hired men. Does, does that mean he, he says, okay, Father, I want to work for you so you can pay me, so I can earn from you? Can you see, he still doesn't quite get it. He thinks he can go to what the older brother is doing and work for the father. Can you see how inadequate his repentance is? And the reality is, the more and more we grow in wisdom and maturity and look back to when we initially repented, we see our repentance was no better than the younger brother's. We really didn't have a clue what we were repenting of. We really didn't have a clue how sinful we were. We really didn't have a clue how helpless we were. We, we thought we could still offer God our services. Make me a hide hand. We, 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 we don't realize how absolutely helpless we are to offer God anything. I love what Jonathan Edwards says. A Christian contributes nothing to their salvation except the sin which makes it necessary. Nothing. We cannot offer God our services and think that that's going to somehow... So when we look back at our repentance, we realize, just like the younger brother, we didn't have a clue. We didn't have a clue. Our repentance was completely inadequate. And yet somehow the Father accepts it. He accepts it. Not only is our, our repentance first towards heaven and, and always towards heaven first and always inadequate, but it's always a consequence. It says... In verse 17, and when he, had, when he came to his senses, he said, I'll go back and repent to my father. What came first? The repentance or the coming to his senses? He first came to his senses. It's important for us to notice the order here because that order is constantly portrayed in Scripture. It's not only here. First he came to his senses and then he decided to repent. His deciding to repent was a consequence of his coming to his senses. Another example I, I read from um, Daniel chapter 4 earlier in the service, verse 25, about God being sovereign over the kingdoms of men and, and you know, uh, giving them to whom he pleases. Uh, just a couple of verses later in Daniel 4 verse 34, when God actually enacts this thing, this dream that he had given um, King Nebuchadnezzar, um, he actually, you know, goes crazy he loses his mind he becomes like an animal and he eats grass like an ox and his, his fingernails become like like uh, eagle's claws and and so on and and for seven times which is probably seven years he, he's in the wilderness living like an animal when that happens it says at the end of this time at the end of the seven seasons it says he looked up to heaven and his senses returned to him not like his senses returned to him and then he looked up to heaven. While he was still crazy, God called him, caused him to look up to heaven and then God healed him. And he came to his senses. And, and I find it, on the one hand, very encouraging, but, but also a little bit scary that even our soundness of mind is dependent on God. Even our coming to our senses is dependent on God. And that's what this little brother experienced here, you know, in the parable. Obviously, it's, it's only a, a fictional story that Jesus tells. But... Jesus is basing it on scriptures like Daniel 4, verse 34. Came to his senses, just like Nebuchadnezzar. I'm sure that was sort of in the background of Jesus' thinking. So he first came to his senses, and then um, he repented to the Father. Now he, he decides, he rehearses his repentance, then he walks to the Father, and it says, while he was still a long way off, 
while he was still a long way off, the father saw him. And the father ran to him, threw, um, fell on his neck and kissed him. Now, I just want you to imagine this picture. Here's a very dignified Jewish patriarch who eats only kosher food and who sacrifices whenever he needs to sacrifice, goes to the temple. Um, a kind-hearted man who gives his rebellious son his inheritance, who, his rebellious son who wishes him dead his inheritance and, and allows him to leave the house. He sees the son. And, and we don't know how long it was, whether it was months or years. And, and, and I sometimes wonder, did he smell him before he saw him? It says he saw him a long way off, but, but maybe he smelled him even before that because he'd, he'd just come from the pigsty, you know. And, and yet this pigsty-smelling young man who had so dishonored his father, you know, dragged the father's name. I mean, just think the dishonor that had come on the father's name, you know. What kind of a, you know, ghastly father are you that your son doesn't even want to stay with you? Can't you raise your son in, uh, according to the Torah? You know, and now he's taken, you know, one-third of your property. You had, you had to sell it, you know. So, so your family is now in dishonor because your property has, has diminished. All of that. He runs to the sun. He throws his arm around him, this pigsty-smelling son who's in tatters, and he kisses him before the son utters even one word of repentance. Did you notice that? Before he utters one word of repentance, the father's already all over him, kissing him. Before he's taken a bath to wash the stench and the uncleanness of the pigsty off him, the father's already kissing him. Before. What does that tell you about your, our repentance? What does that tell us about our repentance? You know, um, in James chapter 4, I just want to show you that this is true, not only in, in this parable, but in other places in the Bible. James chapter 4, verse 6, it says, uh, Therefore, he says, God gives more grace. For God resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. He gives grace to the humble. And we think sometimes that God giving grace to us is the, as a consequence of us being humble. Notice what it says. It says, therefore God gives more grace. And notice that word more. More grace means He's already given grace. In other words, if the grace that He gives in response to our humility is more grace, then what is the grace that precedes the more grace? It's the grace that makes us humble. It's the grace that makes us come to our senses. Hello? We cannot even take credit for our repentance. Even our repentance is a consequence of God's grace. And here's the thing. I just want you to see this. Because if you look at the big picture, and I, and I don't have time to go into this in too, too much depth, you see that the, one, the, the brother in, of the two that changed the most was the younger brother. Why? If we understand that our salvation is not based on our behavior, Let me, let me put it to you, to you differently. The more we understand that our salvation is not based on our behavior, the more radically our behavior will change. If like the older brother, you think that your salvation is based on your behavior, ironically, your behavior will not change. But the more you understand, like the younger brother, that your salvation is not based on your behavior, the more radically your behavior will actually change. That's the way God works. Okay, so we underestimate our sin and we underestimate our need for repentance.
And we overestimate our repentance when we do repent. Right? But even though we underestimate our sin and need for repentance, we also underestimate our Father's love. Look at this. Look at this. This is, this is amazing. We see not only the true nature of sin and the true nature, the true nature of our sin and the true nature of our uh, repentance, but we also see the true nature of our Father. Why did the Father see him when he was still a long way off? How would an average father who had been so dishonored, you know, his son had wished him dead, his son had publicly shamed him and dishonored him, taken his stuff and gone away and wasted it. How would an average father have responded? He would have been really angry at his son. He would have harbored a grudge. He would have said, listen, when that boy comes back, I'm going to give him a good beating. He would have said, you know, I, I, I don't want, in fact, I'm disinheriting him. I'm, 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 he's no longer part of that. He's, he's dead to me. He would have said, if he at all comes back, he's going to have to grovel and work his way back. Yeah, that passage shows us the, the, the younger brother self-talk in the, in, the, in, the, in the pigsty. You know, I'll go to my father, you know, and I will, I'll repent to him. Imagine what the father's self-talk was. Father, obviously, was sitting on the porch. I mean, why did he see him a long way off? He was sitting in the porch waiting for him, watching for him, hoping he would come back. Because that was all along. Even though he'd sinned against the Father, even though he'd rebelled against the Father, even though he'd rejected the Father and treated him shamefully, that was always the Father's heart towards him. He was sitting watching, watching the road. Probably chose a spot where he had a good view of the road. You know, you could see far up in the road. And, and, and you can just imagine, you know, in the evenings, you know, after he'd done his work, just going sitting there and, and saying, Maybe today, maybe to, maybe this afternoon he'll come back. He'll come back to me. That's why I saw him a long way off. Then it says he ran to the sun. Now, you know, if you, if you know the culture of the time, you'll, you'll understand how, how radical this is. You know, old dignified patriarchs in that time didn't run. They walked with measure step. I mean, they didn't wear pants and jeans like us. You know, I can still run in these jeans and still look quite dignified. They wore dresses. They wore robes, which are like dresses. So if you wanted to run, you actually had to go down, lift up your dress above your waist. If you went to battle, that's why they say, um, you know, gird up, gird up your loins. You actually, what they actually did was they, they, would, take the, they would lift up their, their robe and take the, the, the backside up and tuck it into their belt and tie it into their belt so it becomes sort of like a like a pair of trousers. Now, now this father didn't have, even have time to do that. He just lifted up his clothes. <laughs> and you could just see these, these thin little you know, legs sticking out and maybe some of his underwear. And he runs, you know, with, with this dress robe in his hand down the path towards this pigsty-smelling, stinking, rebellious, unworthy son. What does that tell you about the father? It tells you the father's willing to sacrifice his dignity. For his love, in his love for his son, in his love for this unworthy son. Then, like I said, he, he, he kissed him, you know, the stinking son, while he was still unclean, while he still smelled like pigsty, before he uttered even one word of repentance. Kissed him. Before he uttered one word of repentance to the father. And why does the father do all of the above? It tells us in those verses. When he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was moved with compassion. He was moved to compassion for this boy. You know the word compassion? 
you go and search the Gospels, is the emotion which is used to most commonly and most often describe Jesus. Jesus was moved with compassion. And here the Father, Jesus on earth was just representing the Father's heart because the Father is moved to compassion. He's moved with compassion. He's a compassionate God. He's watching us to see when we're going to come home. That's how much He loves us. He's moved with compassion. I, I, I told this story before, but I, it, it's such a beautiful story to me about this chaplain who was serving in the war. I think it was the Second World War. And, and one day after a battle, he was walking between, you know, on the battlefield between the corpses and the half-dead people, seeing if he can find someone to save. And a soldier called him over, and he, he went over, and he saw this guy's he's on the way out. You know, he's been mortally wounded. He maybe has a few minutes to live. And he thought, well, at least I found him at the right time. I can pray with him and so on. And, and the soldier asked this, this dying soldier asked this, this chaplain, this army chaplain, just one thing. He said, Pastor, please tell me, please tell me, is God really like Jesus? Because if he is, then I have hope for myself. As I read the gospel and I see Jesus this, as this compassionate, self-sacrificing man, if the Father is really like that, then there's hope for me. And this parable tells us, yes, the Father is. The Father is filled with compassion for us. And he's willing to sacrifice even his dignity to run to us and to meet us and to save us. I mean, just imagine what was the father's self-talk, you know, in this situation. He didn't sit around saying to himself, that useless son, you know, disgraced me in front of all the people, diminished my honor. You know, he wishes me dead. Can you believe it? Such an unthankful little brat. How much have I sacrificed for him? And now he wishes me dead and just takes my inheritance and runs off. That was not his self-talk. His self-talk was probably exactly the opposite. My poor son is such a fool, but I love him so much. And I know I've, I've been trying for years to talk some sense into him, and I could see it's not working. And it broke my heart to send the boy off, because I know what's going to happen. He's going to mess up his life. But I hope he comes back. I hope he comes home to me. He's got so much potential, and I love him so much. If you could just go and just knock his head out there and come to his senses and, and come back home, you know, he'd, be, he'd be a good boy. I really, I miss him. I hope he comes back today. In contrast, the older brother is moved to anger. Where the father is moved to compassion, the older brother is moved to anger. He hears his brothers come back and he's moved to anger. In stark contrast to the father. Not filled with compassion. Just like the Pharisees were not filled with compassion towards the tax collectors and sinners, like Jesus was. They were filled with anger. And you know what? If you work for your salvation, you will always be angry at those who seem to get it for free. If you work for your salvation, you will always hate those who seem to get it for free. That's why religious people have always hated true believers. That's why Ishmael has hated Isaac. That's why Saul hated David. That's why the Pharisees hated Jesus and his disciples. And that's why religious people today still hate other Christians who seem to not have to work for their salvation. Why are they getting for free what I have to slave away for? If, if you're working for your salvation, you're always going to focus on what you have done and you're going to say, God owes me. God owes me, and he's not giving me what he's owing me. 
He's breaking the deal. He's not coming through on his side. I'm following through on my side of the deal. I'm slaving away for him. I'm obeying all his orders. And he's not coming through on his side of the deal. You're going to be angry at the father. You're going to be angry at your younger brother who seems to get his salvation for free. Who seems to get for free what you've been working for for so long. And when you see that anger in your heart, when I see that anger in my heart, I've got to ask myself, am I being an older brother here? Am I trying to earn my salvation when I should, like the younger brother, be receiving it even though I'm totally unworthy of it? Just receiving it in, in repentance. We totally underestimate our sin and our need for repentance. But we underestimate our Father's love even more. Do you realize how much God loves you? I, I don't care whether you're a younger brother and, 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 and you have a bent towards rebellion and running away and, and wanting the father's stuff and making use of the father's stuff, but you don't want the father. I don't care whether you are an atheist who would like to go to heaven, but you don't want God to be there. I, I don't care you know, where you are or whether you're a religious person who's slaving away, you know, coming to church every Sunday. Like the older brother, trying to earn your salvation, trying to please the father, trying to work for him. And in your pride, overestimating your obedience. I don't care where you are. If your heart, if, if you don't see the father for he is, this compassionate God who is willing to sacrifice his dignity on the altar of your salvation. Who loves you despite your pride, despite your foolishness, despite you dishonoring him, despite you dragging his name through the mud. Who, who loves you, if you're an older brother, despite you saying to him, look God, look, you, 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 I've done everything for you, I've been slaving away for you, and you have not given me anything in return. Despite that pride, he still loves you. If you cannot see that heart of the Father's love, which is, most beautifully and most powerfully portrayed on the cross when Jesus hung there and said, Father, forgive them. In his compassion, he said, Father, forgive them for they don't know what they're doing. Until, unless, and until we see that love, that compassion, the Father's heart, the true nature of the Father, we cannot truly repent of our sin. We cannot truly be reconciled with the Father. And we cannot truly be reconciled with one another. We will always be like the older brother who are you know, and we'll, we'll be angry at one another. But, but if we see ourselves as worthless sinners, unworthy sinners like the younger brother, I mean, that, that younger brother, after what has been done to him and after how he's been forgiven, he can never look down on the older brother again. Even if the older brother is proud, even if the older brother is religious, he can never again look down on him because he's, he knows I'm, I'm no better than him. The gospel humbles us. It humbles us into the ground where we realize I cannot judge anyone because I'm no better than them. Who am I, who am I to, to um, you know, reject my older brother? I, obviously, in love, I, I can correct him, but I, I, must, I can't reject him because I'm just like him. But for the grace of my Father, it humbles us where we don't become angry and separate ourselves from anyone because we realize we know better than anyone else. But on the other hand, it also gives us amazing confidence. I mean, the older brother, 
his confidence was based on his performance. So he'd either be overconfident or he'd be completely underconfident when he didn't obey. And if we think, like the older brother, that our salvation is dependent on our performance, we'll always either be overconfident or underconfident. But if you know that you are saved despite yourself, despite even your repentance being inadequate, guess what? You have massive confidence. Because your confidence doesn't come from your performance, but from the grace of God. And you realize that far be it from your salvation being a consequence of your performance, your performance is actually a consequence of your behavior. And the more I realize that my salvation is not based on my behavior, the more radically my behavior actually changes. Because the gospel humbles me and gives me boldness all at the same time. And all of that comes from seeing the Father's heart, seeing that heart of sacrifice that is the same for the Father as it is for Jesus hanging on the cross, seeing that compassion, seeing that unconditional love. Do you see that? Do I see that? Do we see, do we really see that? And we just want to pray, Lord, that your goodness, your grace, your love will melt, your compassion will melt our hearts. Lord, whether it's hearts that are hard with selfish disobedience or hearts that are hard with selfish obedience, Lord, we pray that you'll melt our hard hearts and help us to come to you just in helpless, humble, hapless repentance which we recognize is adequate and we not even accept it because of the adequacy of our repentance but just come to you as we are and experience your love and grace just want to in closing um, just want you to see the, the contrast between the younger brother who took the father's stuff in disobedience to the father and went to the far country to sin against the father and Jesus left behind all the father's stuff all the father's glory in heaven and came to earth not to disobey the father but to obey him not to rebel against the father but to save those who are rebelling against the father completely the opposite completely the opposite and I, I just sense God wants to make a shift in our hearts God wants to make a shift in our hearts this morning all of us we so easily become either the younger brother or the older brother. And God wants us just to see His compassion, see His love, see His grace, just be melted by it, be, be drawn by His Spirit into His presence and just in absolute joy, just surrender to Him and surrender to His goodness and receive all His goodness even though we know we don't deserve it. God wants us to forsake and renounce selfish disobedience and selfish obedience and just come to him as his sons and serve him so I just want you to close your eyes and I'm going to pray that God will make that shift in our hearts in many of our hearts that shift has already happened but for all of us that shift can happen even more Father God we just want to come before you and we want to see your heart we want to know your heart we want to know your love and compassion we want to be changed by it we want to be changed by it Lord 
want to renounce all selfishness, whether it's selfish disobedience or selfish obedience, Lord. We want to renounce it, Lord, and we want to pray, Lord, rid us of it. We want to live for you, Lord. Lord, where we, where we see anger in our hearts, we recognize, Lord, where it comes from. Where we see rebellion and running away in our hearts, we see where it, we, we recognize where it comes from. And we pray, Lord, that you'll rip up this bitter plant by the roots and remove the bitter fruits of it from our lives. In Jesus' name, save us, Lord. Save us from ourselves. And save us for yourself. Lord, let us be a community, Lord, of those who have been so radically changed by the gospel, so radically changed by your grace, that people cannot put us into the typical stereotype of the younger brother or the older brother. But where we're something that they've never seen before, where we're a community of those who have been so changed by the gospel that they have no, that they have no pride left in them, where they're just humbled under your grace, and yet have been so changed by the gospel that they have no anger or judgment or resentment towards anyone else. Help us to be such a community. Help us to be such a family that can receive both older brothers and younger brothers who are changed by your grace, by your gospel. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening to this message from Shofar Johannesburg. May the grace you receive produce God's greatest glory and your greatest good. For more information and sermons, please visit our website at www.shofar.jobo.com.